Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. A very Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. Today we celebrate this special day when Jesus Christ chose to humble himself to take on the form of a bondservant so that he could save us from our sins. The Christmas story begins 2,000 years ago with a mother, a father, their baby son, and the most extraordinary gift of all, the gift of God's love for all humanity. And isn't that the case where we see God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son, which is what John 3:16 says. Jesus is the reason for this season. Christmas is all about Jesus. That's why we have the name Christ in Christmas, so that we know it's about his love, his birth, and then eventually the life that he would lead for us. Well, as you can imagine, since today is Christmas, we're going to focus on that very topic as we walk through the Christmas stories from Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, detailing some interesting things that perhaps you've not noticed before. I'm Debbie Blank, wishing you a very Merry Christmas. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Sometimes it's important to have the obvious pointed out to us. And I thought of this when I heard a recent sermon on the subject of preparing for Christmas. The message was that it's up to us Christians to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. And that is pretty obvious, but if we don't do it, who will? There's been somewhat of a war on saying Merry Christmas in our culture in recent years, but bringing back the greeting is just one part. Even if we remind people that Jesus is the reason for the season, I think a lot of Christians would be surprised to find out how many people don't even know what that means. This is the time for us to bring the true Christmas message. It is. Now, I'm one of these people that think Christmas is a big deal. Unfortunately, we get caught up in a lot of the trappings and the Christmas presents and the shopping and the food and everything that goes along with it. But we also stop to focus on Jesus. Today's a good day for us to do that. And of course, you and I, in preparing for this lesson, had time in advance to really focus on what Christmas truly means. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, reading the Christmas story and walking through the details. Matthew chapter 1 really begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're going to skip that part. And we're going to begin in verse 18 that says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Let's stop right there, because we first want to focus on Christ's heritage. As we look at the Christmas story, let's look at his father, Joseph. Joseph is mentioned here in verse 19 as being righteous. Now that's a huge statement of a man. Very few people in scripture are called righteous. 
Righteous people are ones who follow God. They do what's right in God's eyes. And clearly, since God called Joseph that, he is that. We see in Matthew chapter 1, we're not going to walk through it, but in 1 and 2, how Joseph had four dreams. God cared enough about this righteous man that he spoke to him directly through dreams, through his angels and through himself in dreams to give him direction as to how he should go. Well, I don't have that very often. I don't know about you, but it shows how God cares about this man and the position that he has as the father of Jesus. But more important than that is Joseph's lineage. It tells us in verse 20 that he's the son of David. Well, he's not technically the son of David because David was born a thousand years before Joseph was born. What that means is he is a descendant of David. And again, that genealogy from Matthew 1, 1 through 17, goes through the entire lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, including David. Why is that important? Because that means Jesus was a Jew. That means Jesus was of the lineage of the Jews. That means that Jesus would fulfill the prophecies made to the head of the Jews, Abraham, in Genesis 12, 3, when God said that all the people of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. That's a promise of the Messiah. God went on in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to say that through David's lineage, the Messiah would come and that that Messiah would reign forever. So the lineage of Christ had to come through the lineage of David. And it did not only through Joseph, but also through Mary. And what's important to note about Joseph is this isn't a biological lineage. This is a legal lineage because Joseph was legally Jesus' father, not biologically. So we have one lineage that comes down, and it's very specific. It names all these names. It's such a rich lineage. Some of the names that you would recognize, even if you don't know the Bible really, really well, there are some very important names there. But it's a legal lineage. He was the foster father of Jesus. He was picked specifically by God to be that father of Jesus Christ on earth. So that's a a really important thing to designate because some people will say, wait a minute, he wasn't really uh, the father of Jesus. But he was in the legal sense. Then we look at Mary. She also was of the lineage of David. We learn from her lineage in Luke chapter 3 that it goes all the way from Adam through David to Mary. So both of them are of the lineage of David. As for Mary and her character, in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the angel Gabriel greets her as, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this is pretty unusual. This is a 14, maybe 15-year-old girl, everyone believes. At least that's her tradition of that day. And at that young age, God saw her as favored. God saw her as being a person who loved God. Verse 30, it says that you have found favor with God. Well, in order to find favor with God, we must love God, seek him, turn to him, know him, obey him. And she did all of those things. If we really want to understand Mary's heart, we can read the Magnificat in Luke 1, verses 46 to 55, where Mary lays out this most beautiful prayer to God, showing her character, showing how she knew and understood God and expressing her gratitude towards him. 
So here we have two very godly, righteous parents favored in God's eyes, both of the lineage of David that God chose to be the parents of the Messiah. So they're both descendants of David from different branches, but it does qualify from the biological and the legal side. Yes, it does. And then we move on to the most important aspect of this because of what you said earlier. Joseph is not the biological father, and Mary was the source by which God implanted Christ in her womb. So we have to know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was not conceived by human means. If you read again verse 18, it says, Before Joseph and Mary had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In other words, before they had had marital relationships, she was found to be with child. Then it tells us in Luke, and it explains it actually better in Luke 1.35, when the angel Gabriel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason... The holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. So in both of those places, to Joseph and Mary, we're told that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by natural means. Why is that important? Because Jesus is God. If he was conceived by natural means, he would be a human being. Yes, Jesus was human. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10 tell us that he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the image of man. But he still remained as God. So he was God and man. If he was born by human means, he would only be a man. No man can save us from our sins. Only God can save us from our sins. So he was perfectly the Son of Man through Mary and perfectly the Son of God through the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. And it tells us also what I had just mentioned from Matthew 1.18, that Mary was a virgin. Matthew 1.23 specifically says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We know that Mary was a virgin from those two passages, but also that statement in Matthew is a quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Luke 1.34, we see also that Mary was a virgin because she asked the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin, when she was told that she would be the mother of the Messiah? So here we have Mary who was kept a virgin until the birth of Christ. Very important. So there could be no question whatsoever that this was a divine moment. This was not a human manifestation of a child. It was a divine moment by God implanting himself in the womb of Mary. This is so important to bring that out because you hear people say, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth, but I do believe in Jesus. I don't believe it's that important if you believe in the virgin birth or not. Why do you suppose people are so resistant to that? Because it's miraculous. You never see it anywhere else in all of human history. And people push against the miraculous. If they don't want to believe something, they will question it. Believing in the virgin birth takes faith. Believing in the Trinity takes faith. Understanding that Christ was implanted by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb takes faith. It's faith in believing that God is real, that his word is real, and it's true. We must believe it's true or we have no faith at all. 
our faith is in vain, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we don't believe in the resurrection of Christ and if we don't believe in the other aspects of Scripture. It really takes faith to believe in God. Now, it takes faith to believe in evolution, too, because there's no proof of that. At least we have proof. We have witnesses. We have a book that documents it, the Bible. There is no proof on the other end. So I think that's why people question it. Well, so much of the Bible is about the miraculous. So if you have a problem with miracles, you're going to continue to have problems with Scripture. But what's important to note is that it does specify that this is one of the important things to know about the birth, that that she was a virgin. It's not something somebody just made up. It's in Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So we know his heritage. Now let's find out who Jesus is according to the Christmas story. In Matthew 1.18, Jesus is called the Christ. Christ is Christos in the Greek. It means anointed one or chosen one. Matthew one twenty one, he's called a son. In Luke one thirty one and 32, he's called the son of the most high. So there it's specified. It's, it's broadened into who he actually is. He's God. His name Jesus means God is salvation in Matthew one twenty one and Luke one thirty one. So right there we know God is salvation in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us is what he's called. I just read that from Matthew 1, 23. God is with us in the form of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Most High, and he is the Anointed One. That's what we've learned so far just in these passages. If you go over to Luke chapter 1, when Mary's asking Gabriel about this, he explains who Jesus is, starting in verse 32. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. We already talked about that. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Forever. Did you catch that? Forever. Nobody else can reign forever. Nobody else has reigned forever. But he, Jesus, the one born to Mary, would reign forever. And his kingdom will have no end. That's who Jesus is. I mean, you can't read this passage and not understand the divinity of Christ as well as the humanity of Christ. He is this much prophesied Savior that we've been waiting for, and he's called such in the Christmas passages. You know, it's interesting that the second advent, the second coming, is kind of packed into that couple of verses there in Luke that you just read, because if it says that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end, we're talking about the second coming. And not only that, all of eternity is packed into those few verses. I know. It's amazing how the whole gospel story is packed into these couple chapters of the Christmas story. But it's easy to miss because we get caught up in the romance of the Christmas story or we just read Luke chapter 2, which is the most familiar part of the Christmas story. So let's move on because there's so much more to look at here. We now know his heritage. We now know who Christ is and what his name means. Now let's look at what he will do. When the angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, he said that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Now, he didn't say that to Mary. He only said it to Joseph. Why is that important? In order to save someone from your sins, it requires a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. If we went back and read the whole passage in Leviticus 16, we could understand the Day of Atonement in the Jewish festivals. But we're just going to read verses 15 and 16 from Leviticus 16 so we can see the importance of a blood sacrifice. 
It says that he, the high priest, shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all of their sins. So the high priest has killed the sacrifice, is offering the blood before the mercy seat at the Holy of Holies, right in the presence of God, in order to pay for the sacrifice of the sins of the people. Everyone understood that for their sins to be covered, there had to be a sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. So Joseph is told the reason for Jesus coming as God in the flesh was to pay the penalty for our sins, to be sacrificed for our sins. When you think about our sins and Jesus going to his death for our atonement, you can go back to that mercy seat like you're talking about. And when the blood covered the mercy seat, God looked down on that and didn't see their sins, the sins of the people of Israel. Once Jesus died for us, once we accept that, and we believe in that, and we trust in that, God no longer looks down on our sins, but he sees the perfect blood of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's how we're forgiven. So again, there's the gospel. That's right, the gospel message in the Christmas story. Okay, so we have this information, but what proof do we have that any of this is true? Well, Matthew one twenty two tells us that all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecies. We're not going to go through all the prophecies in Scripture, but there are dozens and dozens of prophecies about the Messiah, God coming in flesh in order to pay the penalty for our sins. And lots of things that he's going to ride on a donkey and that he's going to be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver and just lots of things about his life and his death. But there's some things in this passage, too, that are prophetic. We learn that he's born in Bethlehem, according to Matthew 2, 1. And that's a quote directly out of Micah 2. We also learn from Matthew 2, 15, that he will be called out of Egypt. Hosea 11, 1 prophesied that. Another prophecy comes from Matthew 2, 18, when it says a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15. Matthew 2.22 says he'll be called a Nazarene. We know just from these passages that he already fulfilled several of the prophecies. The proof of Christ is partially from these supernatural prophecies that we've seen, but then we're also going to see some physical proof in these passages. I was just thinking, too, the specifics in those, just those few that you read. There were two Bethlehems, and it specifies which Bethlehem. So it's so specific, and those things are fulfilled, and usually people can't arrange where they're born in the first place. So these things that all come together, I don't know what the odds are with just those, but it's just astronomical, that nobody could really fake that, that nobody else could do that. It's supernatural. If you want to understand how Jesus fulfilled prophecy, just read the Gospel of Matthew. Look for all of the words that are capitalized, because that means that it's a quote from the Old Testament. Go back then and compare it with those quotes from the Old Testament. Those are just a few of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, because he's God, because he is the prophesied Messiah. Way back in Genesis 3.15, God prophesied a Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And then there's physical proof. The physical proof comes on the evidence of witnesses. 
Deuteronomy 19.15 says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. There's probably three or four other places in Scripture that say you always have to have two or three witnesses. If you remember the gospel message as laid out in 1 Corinthians 15, expressed that the gospel was that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by 500 witnesses. So there were witnesses to that proof. Well, there's witnesses to the proof of the gospel here. We have the Magi from Matthew 2, 1, who called Jesus the King of the Jews. We have the star, this miraculous star. I mean, how many times do you see a star in the heaven and you can go to that direct spot that it's over? Well, the star led the Magi to the direct spot, according to Matthew 2, 2 and 9 and 10. Then you have Elizabeth. When you look over in Luke, you see that Mary went to see her aunt Elizabeth. When she did, it says in verse 41, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then the next few verses, Elizabeth prophesied. So she understood that Mary was filled with the Messiah in her womb. Of course, we know the shepherd's story from Luke 2, 8 through 20, of how they not only realized that Jesus was the Messiah, but they then went out and shared it with other people. That's what the passage says. So they witnessed. In Luke chapter 2, 26, you have Simeon. He wouldn't see death until he saw the Lord Christ. That's quite a promise of God to this righteous man. He not only saw him, but he prophesied about Jesus. He said in verse 29, Now, Lord, you know that your bondservant is to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. That's a prophesied saying that the Messiah is not only for Israel, but he's for us, the Gentiles. And then finally, you have Anna in Luke 2, 36 to 38, where she continued to speak of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem because she knew through God that Jesus would be the redeemer of Jerusalem. Those are quite a few physical pieces of evidence in individuals and in the star. I was thinking of the different kinds of witnesses that are there. We have the Holy Spirit. We have angels. We have cosmic occurrences. We have Gentiles and Jews. We have kings and lowly shepherds. We have women and men. We have old, like Anna and Simeon, and we have the baby leaping in the womb, old and young. So many kinds of witnesses just in those passages you mentioned. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is our Messiah. And then you have another physical proof. If you look at the fact that Herod is mentioned, Caesar Augustus is mentioned, and Quirinius is mentioned, that gives us the date to the birth of the Messiah, sometime between 4 BC and 1 AD. God is very specific so that we can know and go back in history and prove that these things actually happen. Debbie, we were talking about historical figures and how this was a real historical event with leaders that we know of in history. How did they accept him? Well, I would hope that everyone in all of history and today would accept Jesus Christ because they'd see him for who he is. But that hasn't been the case, has it? In this world today, a fourth of the people are Muslims who do not believe in the truth, in the life and death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of him. So there's a lot of other people besides just Muslims who do not believe in that. But at that time, we have a foundation for how people would accept Jesus. In Matthew 2.13, it says, As when the Magi had departed from seeing Jesus, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the Christ to destroy him. And we know that he did, and he killed all the children to and under in Bethlehem in order to destroy the king of the Jews. So the response of the leaders then was to destroy him. No surprise. Isaiah 53, 3 says that very thing is going to happen. That passage prophesies a lot about Jesus' life here on earth. And it said that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Is that surprising? No, because again, we can go back to Genesis 3.15, where God prophesies the Messiah. When he does, he's talking to Satan, and he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. From the very beginning, Satan's been against Jesus. Historically, Satan has done everything he can to destroy the first coming of Jesus Christ. And he's going to do everything he can to destroy the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because if he can destroy the lineage of the Messiah, which is the Jews, if he can destroy anything about the Messiah, if he could tempt the Messiah to sin, then Jesus could not die for our sins when he was here the first time. If he can destroy the Jews now, then Jesus cannot come back and return for the Jews as the Bible says he will. So Satan is about destroying Christ. That means that mankind who is born into sin, we're going to follow the directives of the leader of sin, of the father of all lies, which is Satan. Therefore, many of us will turn against Christ and Satan will do his best work to get us to follow Satan instead of God because he disguises himself as an angel of light in order to do that. Satan hates us. Satan wants to destroy us. Satan wants all power to himself. He wants nothing to do with God. Somehow along the line, we believe his lies. They did at the time of the first coming of Christ. We're doing that today. We must not listen to the lies of the world. Instead, we must turn to Jesus Christ. So, with the proof of who Jesus is just in this Christmas story, let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? Christmas is so much more than presents and food and warm and fuzzy feelings. It's all about Jesus. The Christmas story proves who he is. He's the Messiah. He's God. It proves what he'll do, that he'll save us from our sins. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? to take on human flesh for us? Do you believe that Jesus is the prophesied Jewish Messiah, the one anointed who came to save us from our sins? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? If you believe all that, which is all in the Christmas story and the proofs here too, have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, as God, as your salvation, as your Redeemer, as the witnesses did? Are you willing to commit your life to follow him? There's no better gift that you could ever receive than the free gift of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, that he gives us, that he promises us. But we must receive that gift. Just as we accept a gift on Christmas morning and open it and take it and use it and receive it, we must receive the free gift of salvation. 
God gives it to us, but it's our responsibility to take it, to utilize it, to believe in it, and to live it. That's why Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at the door. He wants to give you this free gift. If you will open the door, if you will take his gift, then you can be with Jesus forever. Will you do that this Christmas day? Will you accept the greatest gift in the whole world and then be able to live with Jesus forever and eternity? I pray that this will be a Christmas like no other where you submit and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.